forward to sharing the Word of God with you this morning. I, one of the delights that God has given me as His servant is He's called me to preach the Word, and that's one of my deep joys, one of my deep passions, is that you hear the Word of God and that you hear it explained clearly and with the application that the Spirit is urging and that it continues to day by day transform our lives, including mine. This morning we're looking at the question of authority. And let's see, did I miss did Chris pass those handouts? I was in there. I wasn't paying attention. Okay, so everybody has a handout. So the question of authority, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 34. Well, let's talk about our dog Java, our children, and authority. We see this played out Often, although Kaylee has gotten to the point to where she has has an influence over Java. Uh, many times Java will do what Kaylee says. Not always, but many times. But most of our children, when they to give Java a command, Java just looks at them and keeps on doing whatever he's doing, and nothing happens. However, usually when I say something, and Katrina, she didn't grow up with a dog, but she's getting there to where she can get Java to respond to her authoritative commands. Um, but usually when I say something, Java knows that he better do what he's supposed to do. Uh, because there comes a point to where, as an adult, you learn how to wield authority in the appropriate situation, in the appropriate time. And so as we look at the question of authority this morning, we are considering authority when it comes to Jesus himself. We can see how authority plays out in our workplace. When people wrestle with their authority or when authority acts in certain ways that are inappropriate. We can see the question of authority play out with our nation or with the nations of the world. and How they struggle with their governments, struggle with their laws struggle with their leaders. This also takes place today in the spirit world. There's a matter of authority as it plays out with angels and demons, with God and the devil. So leading up to this question of authority in Jesus, let's just look at our context again as Mark is very concisely uh, laying the groundwork for who Jesus is and introducing him into ministry. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing. Verse 9, in those days, Jesus came. Verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. Verse 14, Jesus came proclaiming or preaching. Verse 17, we looked at last time. Jesus said to them, follow me. And then today, Jesus was teaching. Jesus was teaching. We're going to look at all in a day's work for Jesus. It's a phrase we use, all in a day's work. Well, Jesus had a very busy 
Sabbath day of ministry. And that is, these verses, 20, uh, 21 through 34, cover one day, a Sabbath day's work for Jesus. And it was a very busy day. During this time, he was teaching. He cast out demons. He was healing. All with this emphasis, the striving force of Jesus' authority as he interacted with these activities. And let's pray. Father, as we look at your son today, as Mark, by the Holy Spirit, presents him, may we understand Perceive and feel the authority of Jesus. May it bring us to worship and obedience, hope and direction as we live our lives for you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So let's look at Jesus' authority in teaching. Jesus, as mentioned previously, he was the perfect teacher. He is the perfect teacher. People can have expectations on their teachers and have expectations on our leaders. Jesus was the perfect teacher, the perfect leader. As Mark tells us about Jesus' teaching, he doesn't tell us the content. He doesn't tell us what Jesus was teaching. But he does focus on the action of Jesus' teaching and then the reaction to it. Mark focuses on action throughout his gospel. And that makes it a um, a fun, action-packed, if we were talking about a movie, it would be an action-packed movie. There's a lot of action, a lot of things happening in Mark's gospel. So let's dig into our text, Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21. And they went, and that's Jesus, and the four that he had called in the previous verses, um, Simon and his brother Andrew, uh, James and John, and then Jesus, they went into this town of Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Right here towards the beginning in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, we have the stage set for a rivalry, a competition, not as far as Jesus was concerned, but as far as the spiritual leaders or the scribes were concerned about Jesus. There was a a tension that plays out throughout all of Mark's gospel. I want to look at some key concepts to help us appreciate what's going on today. I wish we could dig deep, but we're just going to do a very brief overview. And I've considered perhaps in future weeks I can share a post on my blog if you wanted to dig deeper on these key concepts. First of all, Capernaum. There is an extra note on your handout if you want to read. It gives a good overview of events that happen in Capernaum. So when we come to Bremen, 
help us understand Capernaum, I want to talk about Bremen. For years, as I've mentioned before, we drove past Bremen. I remember probably 12 years ago, I, had, I was very annoyed because US 6 was closed and I was coming back on a trip and I had to drive through Bremen to get home. It was painstaking because I count on US 6, 55, well, probably 60 miles an hour driving and I want to I get that last stretch and I wanted to get home. At that time, I think I was living in Napanee. And I had to go through Bremen, go through the stoplights and the traffic. And, of course, everybody was going through Bremen. And I was not happy because the traffic was backed up. And, of course, if you're like me on a trip, you don't want to have to stop 30 minutes before you get home to go to the bathroom. You're just going to wait until you get home. Well, I had to go through Bremen. I think one of the family, I don't remember which one, maybe it was one of the kids, had to stop. And I think we stopped at Subway to go to the bathroom. Um, and so, you know, couldn't wait for all that traffic to get home and go to the bathroom. So Bremen was the drive-by town for us for many years. And we have lived in two other towns here in the area over the last 20 years. As a family, my wife uh, grew up in, in Napanee, of course. But uh, quite a bit, quite a bit, uh, few, several years ago, we lived in Wakarusa. And the first few years, we were, or first months that we were married, and then several years later, we lived in there for a couple years, and Wakarusa is another drive-by town. Um, you drive by Wakarusa on State Road 19, and you have to turn off to get into Wakarusa. Now, Napanee is a different story. Napanee is not a drive-by town. Napanee, there are semis, just one after the other after the other going through town square. You're not going to sit at that light without seeing at least one semi go through or to turn in. In fact, you have to be very careful when you get to the town square. If you're on um, the west side going into Napanee, the town square, you're sitting at that light. If you want to turn on to State Road 19, you better not inch up too far because with, invariably there's going to be a semi turning off of State Road 19 on to US 6 going west and he's going to be trying to avoid that light pole over there and also you sitting right there. And so Napanee is a busy town. And so Capernaum was like Napanee. It was a busier town among the towns among because it was a, a toll station, a place where people had to stop and pay a toll on their way, either going to Egypt or going um, north and over to the um, east, over to Mesopotamia. This was a main route. It was like a U.S. 6 going through, and pretty much anybody traveling south down to Egypt or north and then east over to Mesopotamia, they were going through Capernaum. And so it was also on the coast. It was a place for Peter's home, as we read about later. So Capernaum was among the towns, the, they were all smaller, but Capernaum was a bigger, busier town. By the way, the fact that Bremen is a drive-by town is what I like about it. It's quieter than Napanee, but it still has plenty of good stuff happening here. So let's talk about the Sabbath. Just a reminder, we do not keep the Sabbath today. Sabbath is on Saturday. And that is when they had their synagogue gatherings. And that is also, according to the commandments, is when they kept the Sabbath. And 
of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is the one commandment that is not reiterated in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we don't do it by command, but by a, an appropriate tradition we gather on the first day of the week. Jesus kept the Sabbath, and when he kept the Sabbath, there was a few notable times when he broke their tradition, but also still kept the Sabbath and had to teach them about that. Synagogue. Best we can tell, this tradition of a synagogue gathering started during the Babylonian exile. They were far away from the temple. The temple had been destroyed, and then some Jews came back um, after the exile, and they had another temple that they built, but then eventually that faded away, and then they had synagogue gatherings. Usually, if there were about, I think, 10 Jewish men in an area, they would gather together and kind of like a church, and they would have teaching and scripture reading and prayer. And it was not uncommon for a visiting teacher to come in and to teach in a synagogue, as we see Jesus doing many times in the New Testaments. Then also, scribes. First mention we have of a scribe is Ezra. Ezra was a part of that group that came back from the east and um, helped uh, build another temple and set up religious life in Israel once again. A scribe originally was somebody who definitely focused on the copying of the text of Scripture as well as presenting the sense of what the Scriptures meant. You had many people who were not as familiar with the Hebrew language at that point because they had grown up and spent their lives in another land with a different language. And so it became necessary for a copying of the scriptures into a different language, but also giving a sense of the meaning of the words. In fact, if you read Ezra, you read of a special service they had where Ezra was giving the sense of the meaning of the words for the people that were gathered there. Over time, it was less about the actual copying of scriptures. It came to Jesus' time describes more of they had generations of teachings based upon their understanding of the scriptures and giving the sense of the words. And so you have a group of people who are more holding to traditions built upon traditions than the actual meaning of the scriptures. Which is why, whether the scribes or you want to call them lawyers, there's several different terms that are used for them, teachers of the law, that's why there was a stage set for a competition between them and Jesus. Because when Jesus came, of course, he gave the absolute pure meaning of the scriptures instead of, instead of this, well, this is what the former generation said, or this is what we've been teaching for many decades or many centuries now. No, Jesus gave the pure word of God. And that was a marked difference between Jesus and these scribes. And these people felt it in their souls and their beings because they were hearing the unfettered, the clear, the unalloyed word of God. My friends, this is what true expository preaching will do. It won't teach you tradition. It won't spend all of his time on some preferred application that's built on another application and built on tradition. True expository preaching will tell you what God says, make it clear to you, 
and we'll give you an application that is directly linked to the clear meaning of God's word. Also, you as Christians need to have confidence in the authority of sound doctrine. Sometimes we get a little scared with this big word doctrine. Doctrine just means teaching. But it represents the teaching of what is true and what is core. You and I live according to a creed, according to doctrine that is not dead, but alive. When we have true doctrine, we have the very word of God, and we have the sense of what it means, and we hold that in our souls, it doesn't kill us, it gives us life. Our culture, there's a lot of pressure upon you know, not getting into the doctrine, not really getting into all that high church stuff, not being too churchy, not too religiously, not being a Bible thumper. My friends, it is the doctrine, it is God's word, it is sound doctrine that gives us life. It gives us authority. And we live by that authority that bolsters us up. The word that speaks and gives life. Doctrine, teaching, goes along with authority that gives life. It lives and it shines. There was astonishment at Jesus. We are fresh off of fresh examples of astonishment as we watched our children open their gifts. We were successful and we saw great expressions of astonishment. Now, most adults, they're not, they don't act very astonished when they open their gifts. And I was thinking among the adults of our church, and I was trying to visualize who might show, who has a personality that can show lots of astonishment or lots of visual excitement. And I thought of Tina. You can tell her I picked on her this morning, okay? I thought maybe when she opens her presents, she has lots of astonishment and excitement. Is that the case, Chris? Does she, does she show astonishment? She can't. Of the adults of our church, maybe Betty. Betty, she has a bright, sparkly, exciting personality. I can see her showing up some astonishment and some visual astonishment. So this is what's happening here is people heard Jesus give true authoritative doctrine and teaching. There was an audible, there was a visual woe, astonishment, an expression a tingling of the skin, a mouth drop, a cry on shock. Whoa! Jesus astonished people. Mark does a great job giving us that understanding of emotions. So Jesus' authority in teaching, and then Jesus' authority in the spirit realm. Mark chapter 1, verses 23 through 28. And immediately... There was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. 
He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Here we have a memorable interruption. A man in the audience. Apparently it was not obvious that he was demon-possessed. He was there in the audience as the visiting rabbi teacher was teaching. And at some point, the demon inside this man responded to Jesus in a way that was very uh, disruptive. My freshman year at Bob Jones University, they used to do this, and that they now do it differently, but on Sunday mornings, they used to gather all of the students and some of the faculty, and they would have a Sunday morning church service there in their auditorium called the FMA, a very large auditorium, seats about seven, 8,000 people. And I remember I was sitting off to the left in the, the podium, and there was a stage that was almost as tall as me, higher from the floor, and then the pulpit was right there, a very large pulpit, and I remember off to my right looking and seeing this guy, very obviously not from Bob Jones University, but from somewhere in town, walk down the middle aisle. And of course, nobody wants to gawk, but you have a few thousand people trying not to look and say, what is this guy doing? Where did he come from? Not that he wasn't welcome, but it was just not a normal occurrence to have somebody come in like that. And he walks down the middle aisle, and then he's down at, I think we were singing at the time. I can't remember exactly what we were doing. Um, He walks down to the middle aisle, and right there, and he's standing, and, you know, the stage is almost up to his face. And then there's this big pulpit right there. And what does he do? But he gets down on his knees, and he goes like this. And he is is doing his act of worship. And we're all thinking, What's going to happen next? What are we going to do? And um, he, um, after I think we were done singing, he grabs a seat um, right there in one of the first few rows. And we call that the nosebleed place because really when you sit there, you're looking up like this. It's, it's, it's an um, uncomfortable position to be in. And it's like we're all thinking, well, what are they going to do? Um, and my roommate, we had... Um, because it was such a large auditorium and for offerings or, or passing things out, there was an usher crew. And it was a large usher crew. And my uh, roommate at that time was the head usher, kept it all organized. And um, sure enough, a few minutes later, um, I, probably when we were singing again, here comes three ushers. My roommate was one of them. And they come and they ask the guy to go with them. And they go... Uh, deal with them. So anyway, so I asked my roommate later, so what did you guys talk about? And he's like, I don't want to talk about it. You don't want to, he didn't want to criticize the guy or give him a hard time, but they had to deal with the interruption in the service. Here was a very notable interruption that happened in this synagogue service. And I'm sure everybody was shocked. They didn't know what Jesus was going to do. Why the demon spoke out? Why did the demon all of a sudden speak out? We have to speculate a little bit here. But I think it's a helpful speculation. Because what we see happening here with this demon 
happens over and over again is demons come in proximity with Jesus. At some point, they cry out to him in a very predictable way. Some will say that the demons, when they would cry out to Jesus, were trying out incantations against him to try to get control of him. I don't think that's the case. That's just my opinion. I think that when Jesus came within proximity to a demon or demons, I look at this like for those of you who have watched the Lord of the Rings. And so when Frodo put on the ring, all of a sudden he showed up in the spirit world and all of a sudden the eye turned to him and had to focus on him. In a similar way, when Jesus came in proximity with a demon in the spirit world, it was an un... They couldn't help it. They had to focus on Jesus for who he was. And it's not that they wanted to. It's not that they liked him. It's not that they wanted to worship him. They were drawn to him because he was the Holy One of God. He had the power to cast them into the pit until the appointed time. And they were terrified of him. They were upset with him. They knew who he was. And they cried out to him in fear and disgust and terror. There was Jesus. And in fact, they themselves, because of being in the spirit world, they knew who Jesus was, where the people there in that synagogue in our human realm did not at that point understand who Jesus was in all of his fullness. A very interesting juxtaposition here is when a demon comes within proximity of Jesus, they're drawn to him and they must call out to him. He is the Holy One of God, the one who has the power to put them into the pit. We can take comfort in this, though, my friends. The spirit world that we cannot see, but we know is there, they can see Jesus. They hate him, but they are afraid of him, and they know he is the Holy One of God who will and has the power to destroy them. They cannot ignore him. They cannot but address him for who he is. Jesus said, shut up. Does that startle you, that phrase? It's not a polite phrase to use in our society. Yet we need to see here that the righteous one said, shut up, the falsehood into evil. Literally, the word is be muzzled. Hush, shut up, close your mouth, be muzzled. That is what Jesus said here. Jesus had the authority to say it. He had the right to say it. It was right for him to say it. And he had it done. Jesus will ultimately silence evil. And we see as Jesus throughout his time on earth, when he comes in contact with evil, he shuts it up. Seems that that's impractical today because evil in constant mutterings 
constant words, constant trash is spewing forth. And this speaking of evil and speaking from evil ones and the speaking of evil started in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Starting there in this earth, the spewing forth of evil started. But my friends, someday the spewing forth of evil will be stopped by the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges, judges and makes war. Skipping down to verse 20, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Jesus will speak finally, and he will conquer evil, and it will be done. Jesus has authority over evil. He will say, shut up, be muzzled, be done, be dead, be gone. Rest in that, my friends. You serve the Lord Jesus Christ who shuts evil up. Next, we read of the fame of Jesus as it spread throughout the region. And that does not mean conversion. As we see over and over in the Gospels, there can be a sensation surrounding Jesus. It does not mean that there is conversion. It also should set our expectations today. There can be a sensation of the fame of Jesus and who he is and what he can accomplish. That does not mean conversion. There have been many sensations since the time of Jesus. And then they fade away. However, my friends, when Jesus returns, his fame will be for eternity. And evil will be silenced. The fame of Jesus, we look forward to that someday in his return. Okay, Jesus' authority in teaching. Jesus' authority in the spirit realm. And then Jesus' authority in healing people. Mark chapter 1, verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue. Jesus left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. There's the four disciples right now. We're used to thinking of the twelve. Well, this right now is just the four. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought him to all who were sick 
or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So here we have a transition on this this Sabbath day from the synagogue to home or from church to home, if we can put it that way, in our own context. And I put a little note from Warren Risby there in your handout if you want to read on your own time. So we have a very visual transformation that happens here. It said Jesus came and took Simon Peter's mother-in-law by the hand and he lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So Jesus came. He came to this lady very personal, direct way. <clears throat> he took her by the hand. He touched her with the intent of compassion and help. He lifted her up. He gave her strength. He lifted her from her low condition. Gave her strength to be normal again. And the fever left her. She began to serve. He gave her health and the ability to function in a normal way. And my friends, this is a picture of what Jesus does for you and I. Yes, he does it physically for us sometimes. But he also does it for us spiritually as well. This is a picture of what he did for us at the moment of salvation. He came to us in our lowest state. He touched us. He lifted us up, lifted us out of the miry clay, gave us new life. But also, as we follow Jesus Christ as his children, he does that for us over and over again. We are in a lowest state. We feel alone. We feel hurt. We feel broken. Jesus comes. He touches us. He takes us by the hand. He lifts us up, gives us strength helps us live in a normal way for his glory. Are you in a low estate right now? My friends, Jesus will come to you. He will lift you up. Restore strength to your bones, to your soul. He will give you life, enable you to be normal and to live for him again. Jesus has that type of authority. After dark. They say not much good happens after dark. Well, here is a great exception. This all happened on the same day, this great Sabbath day, this day of ministry, all in a day's work for Jesus. And here are many uh, folks who write the commentaries will point out that the reason they did not They waited after dark to bring folks to Jesus to heal and to cast out a demon was because they were waiting until after the Sabbath was over and the Sabbath ceased um, at dark. And then this crowd shows up at Peter and Andrew's house. And again, demonstration here of Jesus' authority over physical sickness, but also over spiritual sickness with Casting out of demons. Jesus' authority in teaching. Jesus' authority in the spirit realm. 
Jesus' authority in healing people, and then Jesus' authority in the world in me. Here, as we see Mark very clearly point, present Jesus as one of authority, let's, let's think big picture of this idea of authority. Jesus expressed authority perfectly. Yet, Jesus' authority, ultimately he was repressed and he was murdered at his first coming. But he will come back in the fullness of authority someday and he will set up his visible kingdom with his perfect authority expressed and displayed and maintained on this earth. In the meantime, as we are here now in the in-between, we are faced with the authority of Jesus, Jesus here in this passage. It's both terrible and wonderful at the same time. We know that he is not another one of our imperfect earthly leaders. Time after time, realm after realm after realm, we have had disappointment, upset over imperfect leaders, over imperfect authority figures, and perhaps sometimes outright evil ones. So here you're faced with Jesus, who has none of that, that perfect authority. And within your soul, you need to make sure that you have gazed upon and considered and meditated upon the fact that Jesus is the perfect authority. There is such a thing. Let yourself be grounded and rooted in that, even as you face disappointments and outright fear of the authorities of this earth. But Jesus will come someday. He will deal with it. He will banish evil. He will tell it to go away. But also Jesus is our authority. It's amazing what, when you have someone in a position of authority over you, what can happen in your heart. You and I struggle with authority. That is a part of your sin nature. You struggle with authority. You want to cast it off. You want to subvert it. You want to go around it. You want to question it. sad part of your sin is that that is what's going on in your heart when you're faced with authority, whether it's an earthly authority or the authority of Jesus himself. Then there are folks who, because of the, the hurt and the damage that an earthly authority has done to them, that they struggle to see Jesus' authority as a good and wholesome thing. So they must wrestle, they must study, they must gaze upon Jesus and slowly over time heal from their brokenness from an earthly authority and see Jesus for the goodness and beauty of his authority. Let's transition to some application. Who is your authority? I know as Christians, you're going to say, well, Jesus is. 
I agree. But I want you to consciously acknowledge Jesus as your authority. But also, you have earthly authorities. Consider that. Because often we unconsciously repress the authorities in our life because we don't want to acknowledge them or we don't like them or we see their imperfections. We need to acknowledge who our earthly authorities are and also that Jesus is our authority. Jesus has authority over you. Secondly, this is somewhat related. How do you respond to authority in this world? Begin to identify the responses of your heart to the earthly authorities in your life. Because usually we're quick to justify our responses and very slow to acknowledge where we're wrong in our responses. Usually our mind locks onto their imperfections and forgets about our own imperfections. We have, because of our broken sin nature, we are always going to turn a blind eye, even though we don't know we're doing it, to our problems and look at other people's problems. And then we use that when it comes to our earthly authorities as a reason not to justly obey them. Third, what do you do when this world defies God's authority? I'm not going to give you an answer, but I want you to consider how do you react and what do you do and how do you process the defying of God's authority around you? And then finally, what are you going to prepare? Excuse me, I said that wrong. What are you going to do to prepare your heart for Jesus' authority? What needs to be done so that you have a prepared heart for Jesus' authority in your life? Because, once again, your sin nature, without you even realizing it, is going to shirk going to go around. It's going to minimize Jesus' authority in your life. Take a few minutes. Reflect on these things. Respond to the Lord. Exercise faith, humility, confession to the Lord Jesus who is your authority. For some of you, that may mean that you need to come and believe in Jesus for your salvation. You need to be saved from your sins. You've been shirking God's authority over you, of your eternal soul and your eternal destiny. You were born, you were born in the wrong kingdom. You were born bound for hell. That's why the Father loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you so that when you believe in Jesus and accept Jesus' authority in your life, through Jesus and his righteousness, 
you become God's child bound for heaven. Is today another day where you will shirk God's authority over you? Then, dear Christian, prepare your heart to follow the good and pure and wholesome authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't make excuses for how you shirk it.